Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. With 40 days until Election Day, we begin today our series of conversations with Iowa congressional candidates. Now, all of Iowa's major party congressional candidates are being invited to share their views here on River to River. Joining us live this half hour, U.S. Senator Charles Grassley, senior U.S. Senator from Iowa. He's held the seat since 1981, now in his seventh term, vying for his eighth, his challenger, from the Democratic Party, retired U.S. Navy Vice Admiral Mike Franken. Senator Grassley, welcome back to our program. Uh, Thank you, Ben. I've been on River to River before, but it's been a while, so I really appreciate you inviting me back. Very good. We have a number of issues to ask you about. I'm sure uh, top of mind, according to polls for listeners around the country and uh, here in Iowa, a few of our listeners have submitted some email questions. We'll throw those in as well. Let's start off with uh, the issue of abortion attracting a lot of attention since the Supreme Court decision handing the question of abortion access and legality to the states. If a federal abortion ban, for example, the one proposed by your Senate colleague, Lindsey Graham, that would ban abortion after 15 weeks, makes it to the Senate floor, what will you do, Senator Grassley? Uh, I'm for leaving this to the states, because the Supreme Court, after 50 years, returned it to the states where people can voice their opinion on abortion Uh, through their elected representatives, and that's a heck of a lot better than having unelected judges um, uh, and justices make that decision where people have no input. Senator Grassley, should access to contraception also be a decision left to the states uh, or when the federal government should intervene to protect the rights of women to make reproductive decisions? What about contraception? Well... Uh, I've very much uh, taken a leading role in that. Uh, uh, First of all, I think uh, in regard to your first question, I ought to make people clear that all my life I've been pro-life, in my professional life, pro-mother and pro-family on public policy. In regard to the uh, issue that you brought up, I have uh, an access to contraceptives bill, and I hope it's passed so you don't have to have a doctor's prescription in order to uh, get it. Mm -hmm. A listener question from Rhonda, sort of fundamental question from her, what do you believe, and she has you in all caps in her email question, what do you believe are women's rights when it comes to this topic, asks Rhonda. Well, that's going to be decided by public policy when it comes to the issue of abortion. But very much women health issues is very much at the top of any agenda, and it's going to be more top of the agenda because uh, people are going to have to be uh, more supportive of family, more supportive of uh, women uh, in various public policies that could possibly come up as well. Mm-hmm. I guess to make sure you're answering Rhonda's question, what she wants to know what you believe, not what policy is going to be, but what you, Senator Grassley, believe are women's rights when it comes to this topic. 
Well, those, those rights are decided by the Constitution. The Constitution has made a decision that those decisions are going to be made by state legislators uh, according to the laws of those particular states. And that's surely better than having unelected judges make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Would you be in favor of a referendum, Iowans voting on this, like the one that took place in, in Kansas? Well, that's that's up to the state legislatures, and uh, and uh, that's going to be decided by the uh, the legislatures, and not decided by me. And uh, that's the way it should be as well. And that's uh, uh, that gives people an opportunity to vote. That's their voice. Mm-hmm. Let's move on, if we could, to climate change. Um, and I know you, as a farmer, are interested in in this. Uh, uh, topic, uh, especially because of the extreme weather, the ex- more frequency of extreme weather we've been experiencing across the country. Currently, that horrible hurricane um, going through uh, Florida as we speak. The question here, should the federal government be incentivizing these carbon capture pipelines when those projects will require the use of eminent domain, which means that some Iowa farmers and landowners are going to lose their property rights? What's your position here? Well, first of all, uh, in regard to what's happening in Florida, we, uh, there's two things we need to be doing, praying for those people that are going to be hurt as a result of it, and then as a federal legislator to make sure maximum f- FEMA money is available to make them whole. Uh, in regard to your uh, uh, question and pipelines, uh, that's an entirely state issue. That's an entirely something that unless the legislature intervenes, is up to a three-member uh, panel that called the, I think it's called the Iowa Utility Commission, and they make mm-hmm. that decision, and that's where those decisions should be made. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Iowa farmers already seeing the effects of climate change, um, and you perhaps in your farm as well. We have the record drought in western Iowa, regular flooding in other parts of the state and other parts of the country, much more volatile weather patterns. What climate solutions do you support to address stemming climate change? Well, first of all, I hope people would recognize that I'm 20 years ahead of any discussions of global warming because in 1992, I'm the author of the Wind Energy Tax Credit and uh, that tax credit has provided the basis for renewable fuels in Iowa to the tune of about 60% of our electricity generated in Iowa. So I've taken a lead, not only on wind, but on ethanol that has created 46,000 jobs uh, in Iowa because uh, ethanol is environmentally positive. Even more environmentally positive is biodiesel. But I'm also a supporter of uh, solar energy, although I'm not going to take credit for uh, leading on that like I did lead on wind. So I think that I've established my credentials very much uh, in the fight against global warming through just what I've done on alternative energy, and I'm going to continue to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Back to that that uh, question of carbon pipelines. You're right. Of course, the decision on eminent domain lies with the states, but the subsidies for these projects come from the federal government. Should the federal government provide those subsidies? Uh, 
the answer is that the bill that you're talking about, I voted against in January. But uh, the the law is the law, and uh, and they can take advantage of it. But I voted against the bill that established that. Okay. Uh, and on this, uh, related to this topic, Earl, one of our listeners, asks via email, um, would you be in favor of a moonshot-like expenditure on alternative fuels like hydrogen and the latest generation of nuclear power plants? A question from Earl. Well, I don't think we have to do much more on nuclear. I think that uh, if there's anything, uh, the answer is I would support new generation nuclear, and I don't think we ought to be abandoning what nuclear we already have, and I think Germany has found out that their effort to abandon nuclear at the end of this year, they're delaying that. They're going to use more coal because uh, of the situation going on in Europe. We don't want to get in that same situation in the United States. So I've always said that there's four uh, uh, approaches uh, to energy policy. One is we're going to have to use fossil fuels for a, for a while. Secondly, all the alternative energies, including everything I've talked about so far in this program. Number three, nuclear. And number four, conservation. Both conservation that's promoted by the government, uh, which comes as a result of some of the new utility uh, uh, home appliance standards we have, or uh, through uh, just personal conservation. It takes those four programs to have a sound energy program, but nuclear is very much a part of it, including the new, uh, the new nuclear that are very much smaller. And uh, I, I'm not up on all the uh, uh, ideas that go into that, but wherever we can use nuclear, we should, yes. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, um, I'm in a live conversation with U.S. Senator Charles Grassley joining us from our nation's capital. Let's uh, jump to the um, the concerns among many Americans in both parties about the health of our democracy. There have been significant developments around former President Trump since July when the U.S. House Committee investigating the events of January 6th held its last public hearing uh, for instance, the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, the D- Department of Justice investigation into the mishandling of classified documents found there. How would you characterize the U.S. House investigation? Well, I wouldn't question any oversight investigation by any committee of the House. In fact, I think uh, it's a constitutional responsibility. Too many members of Congress think we pass laws, appropriate money, and then we forget about it. No, we have a constitutional responsibility as a check on the executive branch of government to make sure that the president does what the Constitution says to, quote-unquote, faithfully execute the laws. So I, uh, as a leader in, in uh, congressional oversight, uh, there's no way that I could find fault with any committee doing, congress- doing uh, uh, congressional oversight. Yeah. Have you been swayed by what you've heard so far in these public hearings? Has your mind changed at all? If so, how? I think that what uh, I've been, uh, you know, I don't watch television on a regular basis, but I have my staff keep me apprised of what's going on in that hearing. And I think we've come to the conclusion that we ought to wait until they issue their report to draw any conclusions. 
and that's going to be, mm-hmm. I think, uh, it, it's going to be this fall, I believe. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and another thing is that uh, I was there that day on January the 6th, so I know, I know what happened. Yeah. Um, this news from related news from just this week, the Senate announced a bipartisan group of senators who have signed on to co-sponsor the Senate Electoral Count Reform and Presidential Transition Improvement Act. Now, this would shore up some ambiguities and archaic language from the 19th century in the presidential certification process. Yesterday, your party's uh, leader in the Senate, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, announced his support for this bill and passed it out of the Rules and Administration Committee by a nearly unanimous vote. Do you support this legislation? Uh, McConnell made his decision two months after I made my decision to support it. I, I so announced you, are, you do support week. it. I, I announced mm-hmm. that, well, I'm a co-sponsor of it. I announced that uh, the first week of August. Okay. Do you believe now, with uh, uh, Minority Leader McConnell's backing, it will pass? It, it'll pass. It'll pass regardless of whether he, uh, if if Schumer brings it up, it'll pass regardless of whether McConnell supports it or not. Mm-hmm. Do you think that passing this by both houses, having it signed by the president, with this done, do you think any further action needs to happen to stop future attempts to overturn? Um, uh, a valid election results? Well, that's speculation, but I'll tell you, the action taken yesterday by the uh, uh, Rules Committee in the Senate or action taken a week ago by the House of Representatives show that Congress has the capability of responding when something shows up, and I think we'll have to wait until uh, the future times to make a decision if more legislation is being done. But remember, one Congress can't bind a succeeding Congress, so anytime we have to uh, change the law to uh, to uh, uh, update them, we can do that, and that's what this has done. It probably should have been done decades ago, but you don't have, uh, you know, if you don't use the law until recently, you uh, and when I say recently, it was only uh, within the last 20 years that this law has been used three times by Democrats to challenge a Republican president's election and one time by Republicans to challenge a Democrat election. So it's, it's only been used the last 20 years, so that's when these problems show up. So I think Congress is acting uh, pretty fast by doing it, and, uh, and that's just exactly how a lot of times legislation happens. Mm-hmm. With a few minutes we have left, a couple of other items, Senator Grassley. Last week, uh, the Russian president, Putin, ordered his country's first mobilization of, of troops since the Second World War. Hundreds of thousands uh, now mobilized. How do you evaluate U.S. foreign policy under President Biden regarding Ukraine since that Russian invasion uh, now o- over seven months ago? Uh, the level of uh, uh, U.S. level of financial and military support, for instance. Well, I voted for what we appropriated in June, and uh, and I think it's being spent wisely. I think the United States was maybe uh, six months slow uh, getting the help that they needed, and uh, and uh, I'm sure glad that Zelensky, uh, uh, the president of Ukraine, didn't take our advice immediately when Russia invaded and set up a, 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 
shadow government in London or someplace else because mm -hmm. uh, uh, Putin would be all over Ukraine and it would be a further threat to NATO, and that could be a, a future involvement of the United States and NATO if, if he would attack NATO. And then just think what that's going to cost our country when you have to meet the obligations of Article 5 of NATO, that if one company's country's attacked, uh, the rest of the others are going to join in. So I think so. But I'd like to make one comment about his, uh, where you started, by his calling up uh, 300,000 people. If they're, they could be reservists. I guess they are. They probably know something about the military, but he's only going to give them two, uh, two uh, weeks of training and then put them into the Ukraine. They're going to be cannon fodder. And that's, that just continues the inhumane treatment that the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians, only in this case they're doing it to their own Russian people, and it's just inhumane. And uh, by the way, we had a hearing this morning before the Justice Committee on this Holocaust sort of uh, treatment that we're finding in these mass graves now, because I, uh, U.S. law is not up to date. On uh, if we get people that are uh, involved in war crimes, sometimes they can't be promised in the United States. And I think we're going to pass legislation so if we can't get them uh, prosecuted someplace else in the world, we can prosecute them in this country. And that's a bipartisan uh, approach between uh, not only between Durbin and me as the leaders of the committee, but it's also very broadly based bipartisan. Mm -hmm. We have about five minutes left, uh, Senator Grassley. Uh, let me c pivot back to the domestic scene. No one has seen an economy like the current one. We have snarled supply chains, soaring global food and fuel prices, though they've come down in recent weeks here in the U.S., uh, of course, triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We have factory shutdowns in China resulting from uh, a very unpredictable pandemic. In your opinion, what can the federal government do to see our economy through these unprecedented, rough economic seas? I'd like to expand on what you said about uh, Russians' invasion of, of, uh, of the Ukraine and that contributing to inflation. Remember, inflation was 1.4% uh, on January the 20th, 2021, and it was already up to about uh, 6% on February the 24th. So uh, we had inflation a long time before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. What we can do is this. we got to do what Larry Summers, Secretary of Treasury in the uh, uh, Clinton administration and an outstanding professor of economics in, at Harvard, he said in January of of 2021 the economy has already turned around you've already spent enough money don't spend any more money and immediately the new congress and the new president spent another two trillion dollars just like that uh, and that poured gasoline on the fires of inflation so we uh, and then even worse in august another 714 and then forgive uh, student debt uh, forgive student debt. That's another 560 60, uh, billion that's 
feeding the fires of inflation. So we got to stop that. This is one of the main concerns of Iowans at all of my 99 county meetings. Inflation, number one. Energy policy, number two. And the border not being under control, number three. Yeah, but there is, uh, Senator, some new evidence that all of that spending also reduced child poverty for the first time in decades. That's significant. Uh, Yes, but that's what we did in 2020 to get the economy turned around, not what was done in 2021 and 2022. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you quickly before our time ends. Last week, the U.S., I'm sure you're aware, crossed 2 million migrants arrested this year at the southern border. That's the most ever. Also last week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent a flight of migrants to Martha's Vineyard in, in, uh, off of Massachusetts. Migrants who made the trip said they felt, quote, lied to, deceived, used for political purposes. Let me ask you a broader question. I don't know if you'd like to address that. We've only got a couple of minutes. Almost everyone in Congress thinks the immigration system in the U.S. is broken. Each party blames the other. How do we solve the root causes, driving migration to the U.S., people fleeing violence, those horrible economic conditions in their home countries? Well, first of all, uh, it's against the law to enter a country without a permission. And the president enforces the laws, and he's not faithfully enforcing the the immigration laws. And another thing, don't forget, we're not anti-immigrant, because we have a million people come here every year lawfully to our country, and they're welcome and they're needed. And uh, so the president ought to enforce the border. Another thing, though, well, it, when you spoke about what uh, Governor DeSantis and other governors are doing, you didn't hear anything about that when the administration was uh, flying people or busing people in the middle of the night all over the country. And so they get worked up about 50 people going from Florida to Martha's Vineyards. Uh, and every day there's about five, six, or 7,000 people finding themselves into the uh, uh, into the society of the United States, and nobody says anything about it. So there seems to be a lot of hypocrisy in these uh, opposition to what the governors of Texas and Florida are doing. All right, uh, Senator Grassley, we've come to the end of our time. A, a quick answer to the question of uh, how your summer is going. You're still getting out for your regular jogs? Uh, yes, I got up at, uh, well, first of all, I go to bed at 9, get up at 4. By 4.15, I'm out doing two miles, uh, go in and shower, uh, get to the office this morning at 5 minutes to 6. I'll probably leave about 6.30 tonight, so it's all working out very good, and I go two miles six times a week. I used to go three miles four times a week, but uh, I, I guess you could say that I decided uh, two miles is better than three miles, but six days a week is probably better than four. All right. Senator Grassley, glad you're keeping fit. Thank you for finding time for us on this edition of River to River. We appreciate it. Live from Washington, U.S. Thank you. Bye now. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features the Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th, through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Abortion, the economy, the health of American democracy, confidence in the vote. Those are among the major issues on voters' minds as we mark 40 days before Election Day. This half hour, we want to dive into the latest findings of the Grinnell College National Poll uh, released just this morning. It's a partnership between Grinnell College and the nationally renowned pollster J. Ann Selzer of Selzer & Company. Joining us, Peter Hansen, Associate Professor of Political Science at Grinnell, also director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Peter, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ben. Thanks. It's great to be here. I want to mention that Grinnell College is a financial supporter of Iowa Public Radio. We want to have your comment on the areas that you picked to poll here, uh, Peter. Let's start. We have many of the common themes that we covered last half hour, uh, the views of, of Senator Grassley here. So this will be interesting to, to measure the attitudes of Americans on some of these very same issues. Let's start off with abortion. I see one of the big takeaways from these latest poll numbers of Americans believe the ability to have an abortion before the 15th week of pregnancy should be guaranteed as a right for all Americans. And it's interesting, break that down into the the demographics there in terms of the political parties and their religious affiliations. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of interesting data here. And Ben, let me just give you a little bit of context for why we asked about this. You know, the mission of mm-hmm. our poll, as stated by our president, Ann Harris, is to understand the health of American democracy and to ask Americans about how they think about liberty, equality, and the health of democratic institutions. And so asking about um, liberties that have been protected, like the court, uh, which historically abortion was, is, is really, I think, core to our mission. Um, and what was interesting about the Supreme Court's decision in the Dodds case, in which they overturned Roe v. Wade, is that the court said abortion is not a protected form of liberty, but rather it sh- its extent and the limits upon it should be decided by elected officials. So they took it mm-hmm. away from the category of being a protected right and put it back into the democratic process. So we asked Americans precisely about that issue. Uh, should abortion before the 15th week of pregnancy be considered to be a protected right, um, or should it be left to the democratic process? Should elected officials be allowed to decide it? Um, Overwhelmingly, our respondents said that abortion should be considered a protected right during those first 15 weeks of pregnancy. So 69% of Americans told us that, but actually 49% of Republicans said that it should be a protected right. and so we really uh, saw, I think, robust support for that idea. Mm-hmm. Does that mean, how do you interpret that as we are 40 days away from the midterms and, and some backing away from abortion stances by some Republicans nationwide? Um, did, was there perhaps a miscalculation on the part of uh, some um, um, uh, anti-abortion people in the Republican Party about uh, the attitudes of Americans, uh, both uh, among Democrats, independents, and and Republicans? Well, I do think that um, Republicans had this um, interesting position over the last 
decades when Roe was in place in which they could run against abortion and take increasingly um, extreme positions against it without any risk that those laws would actually uh, come into effect because they would be blocked in the courts and, and of course, therefore, there would be um, no political consequences to those laws. And uh, once Roe was struck down, uh, I think what happened is that Republicans quickly discovered um, that Americans uh, were simply in a different place, that they were much more supportive of abortion rights uh, than Republican elected officials had calculated. And so we have seen some backpedaling um, by Republican legislatures and by candidates for office as they have retooled um, some of their ideas in, in response to the opposition they've been getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, why the 15th week of pregnancy in your question about this? Well, uh, there are so many different ways we can ask about abortion, and every iteration of the question um, is, uh, you know, received differently. So um, most abortions happen within those early weeks of pregnancy. So by asking about the first 15 weeks, um, we are uh, covering, I think, the the bulk of abortions that happen. But, you know, the circumstances of, of late term abortions, for example, are very, very different. You know, they um, they uh, occur usually in the context of, of wanted pregnancies when there's a severe health problem um, uh, with the, uh, the woman or, or the, the baby. And so the, the circumstances are very different. So we focused on the first 15 weeks um, because that's the most common kind of situation. And I, I think the circumstances people are usually thinking about. Your poll relieved 50 percent of evangelicals believe the ability to have an abortion before the 15th week of pregnancy believe should be a guaranteed right for for all Americans. Is that surprising that half of evangelicals would would back this guaranteed right? Well, I think it is a a surprising number. You know, I think evangelicals are, um, you know, certainly portrayed in uh, in most accounts as, as being very conservative, strong Trump supporters. On the other hand, it's a very diverse community. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I just think our numbers reflect that. Um, for example, there are there are racial divides within the evangelical community. There are black evangelicals and white evangelicals. They've got different political attitudes. Uh, our data point there captures everyone who calls themselves uh, an evangelical. And so it's got some diversity in it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to another area of questioning from your poll. Let me remind any listeners who may have just joined us. Peter Hansen with us, director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Uh, new data, new polling numbers just released uh, just today, the 28th of September. Um, one of the, 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 the big things you're pointing to in the results here, less than half of Republicans, 42 percent, identify themselves as MAGA Republicans. I guess we could say you said MAGA here, but these would we could say Trump Republicans. I, I think that's synonymous unless you disagree with that. And it's interesting because uh, not too many days ago, uh, President Biden gave a, an interesting speech in Philadelphia where he made a point to cleave, uh, try to cleave at least uh, so-called MAGA Republicans. We use that phrase again and again from other conservatives. What is uh, give us some background and what do you think of these results here? Well, uh, I think your description there captures exactly why we asked this question. We've we've heard um, an increasing use of this term, MAGA Republican. We've heard uh, President Biden uh, try to differentiate between uh, MAGA Republicans and 
uh, and other Republicans. MAGA, of course, stands for Make America Great Again, uh, Trump's president, former President Trump's uh, uh, campaign slogan. Um, and so we really wanted to try and figure out, you know, what what are the distinctions between uh, Republicans who might identify themselves as MAGA Republicans and those who do not? Um, and sure enough, we found a lot of distinctions um, that in retrospect, I think are kind of predictable because they, they describe, um, I think, the, the core of uh, the support base for former President Trump. And that is uh, Republicans who identify themselves as MAGA Republicans are more likely to be older uh, they're more likely to be male. Uh, they're more likely to be, to, they're, they're less likely to have a college education than Republicans who don't use that label. Um, and so I, I think they represent the core of that Trump support as we've come to think of it over time. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the health of our democracy. You were interested in this. Perhaps you can uh, give us some context here before uh, the, the the questions here. We we have this spectrum. I mean, when we talked about the January 6th investigation, we're awaiting that uh, postponed hearing was to take place today, except for the hurricane uh, pushing that off into the future. But uh, we have a whole spectrum here in the United States of, uh, you know, Trump backers would say it's a witch hunt, the January 6th the House investigation, even though it's a bipartisan. Uh, others would say, now, wait, uh, the the health of our democracy is really in jeopardy in a way that it hasn't been in nearly 250 years of, of the American experiment. Well, uh, I think these concerns you're, you're expressing about the health of our democracy are, are well-founded, and uh, we're hearing them from every direction right now. Um, one of the things we did on this poll is ask Americans what issues would be a major factor in their vote in uh, the midterm elections. And 81% of them said that the overall health of American democracy um, would be a major factor for them. Now, that includes 78% uh, of Republicans and 85% of Democrats. Now, that's, that's not a big difference. That's actually um, an overwhelming answer uh, by both parties. But I think what's interesting about this is Democrats and Republicans, I think, are saying the same thing. They're both expressing this concern, but the nature of their concerns are just entirely different. Uh, for Democrats, it's concerns about potential changes to our system of elections, you know, the worry um, that uh, election results are not going to be respected in the future, that we might see more events like those of January 6th. Uh, for mm -hmm. Republicans, it's this idea that the 2020 election was stolen and that future elections might be stolen. Now, of course, I have to say there's absolutely no evidence that's the case. It's been repeatedly looked at and, and been debunked, but it's been widely accepted in the Republican electorate. Um, so, so that is this interesting area of overlap between the parties, but I think it comes, again, from entirely different directions. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing in this polling, though, um, encouraging that the number of Americans believing their votes cast in the upcoming election will be counted as intended and that that there's rising optimism there? Well, this is a very interesting finding. And so let me provide a little bit of context here. Um, it used to be the case when we f first started running our poll back in 2018 that Republicans expressed the highest level of confidence in our elections. They were the most confident that their votes would be counted as cast. Um, and then 
when the 2020 election came along, their confidence plummeted. It went from 85% of Republicans saying they were very confident in uh, their votes being counted accurately to just 36%, to just hit rock bottom. Now, really what's driving the overall increase in confidence in elections is a slow, steady increase among Republicans. That's been happening over, say, the last nine months or so. So Republican confidence has has crept up from its low point of 36 percent back uh, a year ago to 53 percent today. Now, we don't know exactly why that is. I mean, I, I think there could be a lot of potential explanations for that. But that is a change, right? So there's been a substantial increase in confidence among Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the current president? Uh, what polling did you look at regarding uh, his uh, performance nearly uh, two years in office? Well, Joe Biden's uh, numbers uh, continue to be very, very low. We measured him with a, a 56, I'm sorry, a 36% approval rating. Uh, more Americans disapprove than approve of the president uh, by a substantial margin. And he's really been stuck down by uh, our measures in the 30s for quite some time now. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that in most years, I would say um, that that number is going to be driving the midterm election results, that a uh, uh, low approval for the president is going to translate into substantial Republican gains in the midterm elections. Um, But our polling results are really interesting this year. They're just not showing that kind of wave. Um, Mm. And there are two big indicators of that. Um, The first is we ask a a question which asks generically, uh, do our respondents intend to vote for a Democratic candidate or a Republican candidate for the House of Representatives. Because we're a national sample, we have to ask that generically. We can't ask it specifically about a specific candidate. And we find that Democrats are leading on this generic ballot, ballot 46 to 42%. So uh, our best indicator of how the race for Congress is going is that Democrats are in the lead. Additionally, we asked our respondents about a whole variety of forms of political activity. Uh, that they might have done in the last year. Those included things like contacting an elected official, helping people register to vote, giving money to a candidate, attending a march or a rally, volunteering for a political candidate. These are all ways that people who are politically mobilized can engage in the political process. And for every single one of these options, Democrats were more likely than Republicans to have reported doing that activity. Um, And so that was just a really strong signal that the Democratic electorate really seems to be going into this election more mobilized than the Republican electorate. Now, Mm -hmm. that's just sort of a shocking finding. I mean, if you think about how midterm elections normally go, I mean, typically um, the party that's out of power in the White House, and so in this case, the Republicans, we would expect them to be more mobilized. Um, A great example of this is the 2010 election you know, when Barack Obama was president. Obama came into office with this incredibly large, diverse coalition of young voters and voters of color um, and swept into office decisively. Two years later, the electorate was very different. It was older. 
uh, it was more homogenous. People were more likely to be white. They were much more likely to be conservative. That's who was mobilized in that election. And Republicans were swept into office as a result. We just aren't seeing any evidence of that kind of wave uh, in our polling data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only have five minutes left. Uh, uh, Peter Hansen, if you've just joined us with us, director of the Grinnell College National Poll, new poll data out just uh, this morning. Uh, fascinating. Uh, so many areas that we won't get to in the, in, in the next five minutes. Let me, uh, same-sex marriage, gun rights, um, anger you looked at. Uh, pick out something that you, you think we should touch on before our, our time runs out, uh, Peter, that, that, that we haven't, that you, you're especially interested in these poll findings. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's really interesting to go back to look at how Americans think about rights. Um, And what we did in our poll is we just took the Supreme Court uh, at face value. The Supreme Court said uh, abortion should not be a protected right. It it should be um, settled in the democratic process. Now, what was so important about their logic and, and that decision is that if you understand the constitutional logic behind Roe, you would realize that the court was also calling into question previous decisions that protected access to contraception, um, that protected people of the same sex from engaging in intimate relations with each other, that protected same-sex marriage. Um, All of these decisions basically arise out of the 14th Amendment. They are all an interpretation of the word liberty. And over the last 100 years, the court has really had to struggle to decide how to interpret that word liberty, you know, what's protected and what's not. Um, In the the Dobbs decision, the court really implied that all of these things could go back into the democratic process. And in fact, Clarence Thomas said so specifically. He said that precedence on on contraception and same-sex marriage should be struck down. So we just went down the line and asked about all of those things. And in addition, um, we asked about perceptions about the right to uh, carry, openly carry a gun in public places. Um, and we just wanted to see what Americans said about this. And mm-hmm. what was interesting was just sort of the decisive rejection of the court's logic here. Um, so, for example, in the context of contraception, 80% of Republicans and 96% of Democrats say that this should be a protected right. Uh, for marrying a person of the same sex, 56% of Republicans and 89% of Democrats say that should be a protected right. Um, so all of those things that were linked uh, with abortion uh, by that same constitutional logic are all things uh, that the courts called into question, but Americans say should be protected. The one place where we saw substantial partisan division uh, was with firearms, where we had 82% of Republicans saying there should be a protected right to openly carry firearms in public, but 28% of uh, only 28% of Democrats saying that. Yeah. Um, it's remarkable when we go back to the same-sex marriage question. You looked at, you know, commenting on the courts. I'm thinking back to the day on this very program when I was hosting in 2009, the spring, when Iowa uh, became the third state in the union uh, to um, allow same-sex marriages. And then promptly after that, there was a call for a referendum by some um, lawmakers in the state. And, and now we have across the country, according to your latest polling, 
74% of Americans believing the right to marry someone of the same sex should be guaranteed. Uh, Has there ever been such an attitude change so quickly, Peter? That's, what, 13 years. Uh, What a swing. You know, I I can't think of any other issue in, in my lifetime where opinion has shifted so dramatically and, and really so robustly. I mean, that is a um, a deep, enduring change where if you would look back in the 80s, the idea of same-sex marriage was rejected uh, by most Americans. Um, and now here we have it being seen as a, a, a right that should be constitutionally protected. So um, it is just an extraordinary shift that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last minute we have together, comment um, on what you have coming for the next uh, Grinnell uh, College uh, national polls. Uh, another poll can we expect before Election Day? Well, we won't be out again before Election Day. We'll be uh, back out again in the spring. and we've, we've got a lot of talking to do and a lot of time before then to decide what our topics should be. Um, I will say uh, I think it's important for us to look at, um, if not in our next poll and, you know, sometime in the future, the support for various kind of reforms to uh, the American political system. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, you may have seen, for example, that there has been calls for a constitutional convention. Um, You know, actually, a number of states have have ratified this call. This could profoundly open the door um, to a uh, a reworking of our political system. So I want to look at support for that idea. Um, other ways of, of uh, changing our representation, for example, would people be more supportive of moving from our single member districts that we have now for Congress to proportional representation and just try and, and see if we can connect an appetite for reform with some of the um, yep. other attitudes that we know are out there. Fascinating. Peter Hansen, we'll look forward uh, to that polling when it comes in in the spring. Peter Hansen, Grinnell College National Poll Director. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for having me. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. River to River today, produced by Caitlin Troutman and Katherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.